0: This is something new here on SFD, and something we've been thinking about for quite a while. I got together with some of my old Peace Corps folks to talk about some of the concepts in the last few short shows and hash out our conflict and or agreement. I'm not going to lie, this was a little bit rough. It's less tight than I would have wanted, and if and when we do this again, I'm going to have to change the audio scheme. What is great about not doing this kind of thing live, though, is that I could really cut it down to the more essential elements. The first of anything is pretty rarely the best of anything, but I wouldn't be putting this out at all if I didn't think that it was worth your time. In housekeeping terms, my folks are coming down to Mexico this week, so the next couple of Mondays are up in the air. I think it'll be the last thing that Rob and I did in a week, and then hopefully Vietnam 2 after that. Vietnam 2 was supposed to be a guarantee by next Monday, but I hadn't really done the math on my parents' trip, so well, there you are. All the normal talk show caveats apply. I'm John Coombs. They were Terry, Mike, and James, and this is Talk for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? Para qué las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough,
1: of war and hate and oppression.
0: Across the world, we are hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice.
2: There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties.
0: We have an obligation to
3: be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy
0: from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people.
3: Those who make
2: peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come,
1: not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow.
0: Okay, so we're here together doing the first talk episode, more or less, of SFD, not counting the stuff that Rob and I That Rob and I do together. This is all of us talking about just SFD, which appeals to my self-centeredness that we're just going to talk about the stuff that I write. So if we could start with James and then Mike and then Terry, if you guys could say your names and who you are and uh, where you come from.
2: Hey there. My name is James Dykstra. I'm an old Peace Corps buddy of John's. Was in a tiny little town in Mexico for three years. John's alluded to me, or at least my house, in several SFD episodes. But I'm now back in my native Kalamazoo, Michigan, working as a freelance medical interpreter. And yeah, that's me super into sustainable agriculture. That's kind of my wheelhouse. So excited to be here, Mike. So
1: how are you guys doing? I am Mike Escobar, another Peace Corps friend of John's and everyone else that's here. Also in the Sierra Gorda de Querétaro. And I'm from Long Island, New York, but currently living in San Diego. I'm working as a water resources engineer and yeah really into the environment climate change and all that jazz though sometimes i have a bit more of an industrial outlook on it depending on my mood all right terry
3: i'm terry john's last friend from Corps, and i'm from alaska but i'm currently living in seattle working on working with a hiking company i guess um into environmental education
0: all right so What I think we're going to do, we have an outline here, a very loose outline, but I think what we're going to do is go through these shows, which maybe are in order, I I don't even remember. I'm going to talk a little bit about what the show is about very briefly, because hopefully everybody who's listening to this has already heard those shows, and then we'll talk about what we think about. So the first one is land and capitalism, and the basic premise here is that capitalism manages to take the goods of the traditional poor, or really the not-that-poor traditional peasant class replace them with manufactured garbage, and then repackage the original goods for consumption by the wealthy. So the case in point in the show in the U.S. is bread. It used to be that stone-ground, whole, ancient wheat artisanal sourdough bread of the kind that you could literally live on was the basic staple of the American and the Indo-European diet. That bread was aggressively replaced by bleached, denutriented, white flour, industrial yeast factory-produced Wonder Bread and Wonder Bread alikes. And even the sliced loaves of whole wheat you can get at Costco today are much closer to Wonder Bread than they are to real bread as was previously consumed. And it's given us colon cancer and diabetes and who knows what else because we don't really understand the human gut. And then I talk about that happening to traditional Mexican culture and then I think it's pretty much a law of capitalism that it does that to uh, traditional goods. So that's what the show's about. Terry, I think you had some notes here.
3: Oh yeah, I just want to go, I, I don't have the answer to my question that I posed in notes, but I want to ask all of you what exactly enriched means. Because you see, so for, for buyers, buyers who buy bread, I would like to buy bread, it's healthiest for me. And I, as a person who is marketed to, will buy things that say stuff like enriched, you know, extra vitamin D. So I'm fooled by that. But I know that enriched isn't isn't what it sounds like.
0: Well, well oh, a lot of people. Anyway, <laughs> James, you take it. We've read the same pollen. So if I'm saying anything, it's straight from pollen anyway.
2: Well, the only thing I had to, to say off the bat was the only thing I'm thinking of is niacin, which is super interesting thing. Like, I loved the episode. I loved when you were talking about bread. But finally, when you got to the Mexican stuff, I was like, yes. But the great thing about nixtamalization that you mentioned was through this super simple process— you free up available niacin, which is necessary for the human body. And that if you're producing corn without nixtamalization, which is also
0: like fallout from taking... What's what's Nixtamalization? nixtamalization?
2: Basically the traditional method of prepara- uh, preparing corn in Mexico, this kind of um, Mesoamerican. So cooking, cooking corn with hydrated lime on the stove just for an hour or so makes it a much more digestible and healthy grain for the human body. So that's something that kind of by default they have to add back into industrial bread. Yeah, I was just trying to tie back the the Mexican thing. Yeah, no, I like that.
1: Yeah. Mike, what did you have? Yeah, I'll see if I can do this right. And if not, John, you can come in with your bread knowledge. But as I understand, bread comes from wheat and flour and the production of flour to produce bread is a, is a production process that the, the goal number one from the company side is to make sure that this is a process that will produce a product um, that will last on the shelves for a long period of time, so it's safe to eat for a long period of time. And to do that, you take out, I believe it's the germ of the wheat, which is the seed of the wheat, and that has a lot of the nutrients that you would get in a an artisanal old-school style bread. But seeing as that's taken out for... Preservative purposes, you basically have this bread that doesn't have any of the nutrients that should be in the that are, would be in the original plant that would have been made available to the human body. So after the bread is made, you inject or add in simplified versions of a bunch of vitamin D, a bunch of niacin, a bunch of what other other vitamins are considered good by dietary science in the United States post nineteen you know forties for our purposes today. Mm-hmm. And
0: that's kind of what, that's why it has to be enriched because we took it all out in the first place. And people were getting, I can't remember the name of the specific disease, but people were getting like rickets and scurvy. They weren't rickets and scurvy, but something like rickets and scurvy uh, because they were subsisting on bread and the bread did not have any of the nutrients it had previously possessed. I do know
1: that there are even if you get whole like whole wheat bread today or multi grain or whatever, you're still not getting the whole wheat plant right. in the process. Though I'm pretty sure that there are places in the United States that are you know putting in a lot of effort you know to be local homegrown wheat using na- native wheat strains or I guess quasi native because wheat's not from the Americas but well adapted wheat strains to produce local artisanal bread, it's not going to last as long, but you eat it soon afterwards. It has all of the, you
2: know. One, one thing that was interesting that I've read more recently was even whole grain that you can buy in the store now, it mm-hmm. still goes through the same industrial process of separating out the, the brand from the germ. And then at the end, they bring it back together. And the interesting thing is it still doesn't act the same on like a biochemical level. Than if you had left that grain whole, likely fermented it or soaked it or done something to it to kind of pre-digest it and then grind it together and use that as flour. I just thought that was interesting. Like even if you bring it back together at the end, you still this idea that Pollen talks about sometimes of things being greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. And we we apply this really reductionist logic to how we produce all of our food, and we think, well, we split it apart here, but we'll bring it back together. Well, it's still it's not. Does doesn't seem to act the same on um, the human organism or yeah.
1: yeah, and honestly that reductionist logic has greatly benefited human society and the human species in so many wonderful ways. So I don't wanna completely knock it as, you know, it's always wrong because it's not. It's often right and we learn a whole lot by it. But at the same time, it's not the, the end all be all of scientific inquiry.
0: Well, and he's not pollen the michael pollen the author well journalist turned author that we're talking about he's not just talking about like deductive scientific logic he's or inductive scientific logic he's talking about um that logic as applied to nutrition and that you know every decade there's some nutrient or some food that's good for us and some new food or nutrient that's bad so for a while it was fat for a while it was cholesterol for a while it was or well it should be sugar but um he posits that we really don't understand the way that food works in the human body and that certain changes we've made to agriculture, for example, believing that plants just need carbon, nitrogen, and what, potassium? James, what's the other? Phosphates? That reducing plant nutrition to three chemicals has really created a basically an agriculture of, of nutritionally deficient plants versus... You know, an old style of agriculture that grows up out of a living soil that's incredibly complicated, and that we'd never be able to duplicate out of a industrially produced bag of fertilizer.
1: Yeah, for sure. And
0: to go along with that, like,
1: can do it with no like no-till agriculture. So much such healthier soil, um, and it's so much more effective at producing really large quantities of, of 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 food when you incorporate crop rotation and not using any pesticides or only using organic pesticides. There are so many major benefits that we can get by
0: using. Well, speaking directly to that and to the topic of the show, which is capitalism sort of stealing, you know, the human birthright and then selling it back to us. I mean, I think agriculture is a perfect example, right? You know, what's simpler than dirt, but almost no farm in the, well, you know, proportionally almost no farm in the U.S. has dirt as dirt was understood by humans. For the beginning of human history. And you can't just grow stuff in dirt anymore because the dirt's dead. You have to input, you know, industrially produced fertilizers and, and pesticides. Can any of you guys speak to the productivity of old style traditional planting? A square foot by square foot productivity of the milpa, for example, versus industrial ag? I don't know if I could speak to like uh, specific statistics about
2: productivity, but I, and I think you might allude to it or speak specifically to it in the episode. But if you're looking to, to maximize yield of one specific... Um, grain or whatever cereal crop you're looking for, the best way to do that is to clear off acres and acres and acres of land, get rid of all your fence rows, get rid of any sort of competition, basically leave your, go from soil to just a sterile medium for seeds to germinate in. There's, I mean, there's ways to, to, (laughs) with fossil fuels, you can pull out a ton of yield of one specific crop from a specific area of land, if that's your goal. Last time I checked, my, I would rather like not just eat a big bowl of corn or a big bowl of soy. Well, maybe sometimes, but the beautiful thing about milpa is not a very and it can be marginal land too. It can be it can be land that didn't need traction. You didn't need a tractor with a a pointy stick. You can literally plant on a hillside and this intercropping system of well, las tres hermanas. The, the milpa is is traditionally like this three sisters. But these plants that work one of the words i'm looking for corn corn in squash yeah exactly but basically you you plant corn the the squash is a vine so it kind of climbs up it utilizes those kind of interstitial spaces and it's a much more efficient and a way to get a healthy balanced diet and not just one huge quantities of one grain where one family could be producing basically a subsistence could be producing a well-balanced rounded diet on a small
0: plot of land And can anybody speak to why it's difficult to scale the milpa up to industrial production?
3: Maybe. I'm not quite sure. It probably requires hands to get in there and like weed. I'm not sure if there's a giant machine that's as efficient as like, or, you know, like combines or something like that. So probably it's more labor.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And something like 2% of people in the United States have anything to do with food production right now. And under the milpa, the number that would if, if we, like, as a country switched over to, you know, traditional indigenous farming methods, we'd have to have a much higher percentage working in the fields. Because you can't just drive a car combine through a through a tiny milpa and expect it to somehow separate out those three plants and then the...
2: A trade-off that, I mean, in the United States is where it's kind of in vogue to be talking about, you know, eating more locally, sustainable, local board type stuff. Definitely the trade-off is if we want less tractors in the field, we need lots more people so sometimes it can be an uncomfortable reality of people facing the fact that, well, I don't know, farm labor, field labor can be hard, <laughs> but really that's what it, it, it either comes down to, people getting more involved or more tractors.
1: Uh, and one, thing, one other thing I wanted to add, as we're talking about land and capitalism and how it affects you know, people's relationship to, to land. I mean, as someone who grew up on the East Coast in a very urban area, I was generally always considering the Midwest as farm country, basically flat forever, it all looks the same. And obviously, that's not the case from plot to plot, let alone state to state. I mean, you have vastly different soil types, you have different weather patterns, you have such wide variation between you know native crops in Michigan as opposed to I, I mean, different parts of Iowa to Kansas to wherever else and where you're getting your water from, what's in the water, what native bacteria you have. So the industrialization of the farm is effective for people that have a lot of capital to to begin with because you can kind of pick a nice, you know, one size fits all way to produce all of the food for the United States or wherever in the world. But it has to be a very simple food. It has to be a couple of the same things over and over again. And you have to treat all of the earth as this very simplistic earth is a medium for nutrients to enter the roots of plants. And that's it. And if you think of it that way, combines make sense. And 2% of America farming for food makes sense. But if you consider the like the land being unique, different in every single place, and farmers having the, the knowledge of the local land and, and how weather patterns affect growing seasons and frosts and whatever, you have to treat land in a very different way. And you have to have a more multi-faceted approach to to farming, you can't do it in this you know, one-size-fits-all model that works for an industrial society, but not. But humans aren't, you know, machines. We are living organisms. And someone that I want to mention is David Montgomery. Um, he's a geomorphologist in Oregon or Washington. I think it's in, he's in Washington, and he's written a book that I really want to read. And has done a lot of studies on like no-till agriculture and. A lot of the stuff that I've been mentioning right now, and he's just fascinating to listen to. So, highly recommend looking into him for. He's like a MacArthur Genius Fellow and all that kind of jazz.
0: Well, actually, speaking to, speaking to that, one of the things that capitalism has done to us, uh, or the processes involved in capitalism have done to us, another thing that they've taken away from us is variety and regional difference. And I, I wrote I wrote a little bit about this in Peace Corps, but you know, 150 years ago, if you walked across the United States every time you cross what is today's zip code, you know, every time you'd walked 20, 25 minutes, you'd be looking at like a pretty seriously different place. It would have different beer. They would have different regional foods. Some places would grow apples. Some places would go rhubarb, but things would change and there would be variety. And that's part of the beauty that travel used to have, that things would change so drastically, so quickly. But nowadays you can drive from one side of the United States to the other and see all the same foods, well, you're going to see corn everywhere and in everything, but all the same foods, all the same restaurants, the same stores, the same products. And if you go into what one of the things that we, I spent a little bit of time in Havana and one of the most depressing things about it was that cool new cafes in Havana looked exactly like cool new hipster cafes look in Copenhagen, look in Mexico City, look in San Francisco, the same everywhere in the world.
1: Yeah, it's it's we have this, you know, saying that variety is the spice of life or whatever, but not how we act with food.
2: Well, I think that's interesting because kind of going
0: back to the point Mike was... Did we lose Terry, by? For our listeners, Terry lives on a boat, on a sailboat. So her Wi-Fi... She said her Wi-Fi is in and out, so we should keep going and she'll be... She's walking to
1: the Wi-Fi. She ebbs far from the (laughs) (laughs) Wi-Fi.
2: So what I was going to mention was... So we've kind of... We've identified that capitalism has this tendency to homogenize things and just kind of give us the same something that we've all realized you go to these big cities and whether it's Munich or Mexico city or wherever it's like, well, this kind of felt like the same uh, concrete jungle that I was in on that other continent. It all feels the same. It feels like even if there's an aesthetic quality to a cool little hipster cafe, or even so applying that to Mike, what Mike was talking about with kind of novel at some point seemingly, or like, I don't know, sustainable agriculture, it, that still feels like a way that capitalism is repackaging some of those ideas, almost like these feel-good valves of like, no, it's okay, we're solving these issues, but really it ends up being kind of the same bill of goods. It might have a pretty image on it, or it might feel a little bit more comfy or cozy, but at the end of the day, I'm also kind of a skeptical of some of that no-till stuff. It, it often does still rely on quite quite a lot of pesticide input, to kill off the plants before you you do your next rotation, and that might be something that they're dialing in a little bit better, but I don't know. That's my inner cynic speaking. Yeah, I guess I'm referencing
1: a particular talk I was listening to by David Montgomery where he was talking about how basically, you're right, no-till is not particularly effective when it's just no-till. You kind of have to do a bunch of things at the same time. You have to include some other you know best practices for sustainable farming and then it, and it does take some time it's not an overnight sort of thing but there is a, a movement in the united states already to have no-till agriculture people do this in the united states already. oh sure yeah and it's effective granted like what's the advantage of tilling you don't have weeds you know like weeds are annoying but if you have a, a good you know healthy soil you can actually do better even if you have to spend some more time weeding And people don't want to put in the work to weed, you know, that's like, there's that aspect of, you know, the short term, this is not interesting to me, this is a lot of work, screw that. So I understand that side too. I mean, weeding is not the, not so glamorous, but there are benefits that combining a a, a number of more sustainable practices, we're not talking about hardcore permaculture in any, you know, really intense way That, that can work as well, but that requires an insane amount of attention to detail. This is
2: more- It requires manual labor. It requires like backbreaking.
1: A lot, a lot of it. You're right. So this is something that's a little bit more accessible and I'm trying to learn a lot more about it now. So hopefully have some more info in the future. Something that I wanted to bring up as we're talking about land and capitalism, I don't like using the word capitalism so much just because I think capitalism, people use it with a lot of different definitions and different cases. So, I'd like to hear from you guys how, like, a different word or how you would characterize the capitalism that we're talking about.
2: Ooh, I'd like to hear from you. What about deregulated disaster capitalism? <laughs> apply some Naomi Klein? I was
1: about to say, yeah, you're a Naomi Klein fan?
0: I mean, so two, so two different things. One is that if we're talking about capitalism qua capitalism, what we're talking about is a system in which banks primarily lend out capital to people who do productive projects, pay off those loans, and... I just, so just the, the most basic of economic definitions. And when I talk about capitalism in general, what I'm, what I'm in, for the most part, referring to is late-stage American capitalism. So something that's got some sort of social safety net, but one that fetishizes the free market and has been moving in that direction for the last, well, since Ronald Reagan. So almost for 30 years now.
1: Yeah, uh, that I, I guess I always find that important to talk about because- I mean, No, you're right. Like someone else to be like, no, capitalism is different. I read this word. I skimmed a book about, I forget what it was called, Howard Howard Bloom, I think, book wrote a book that was about like why capitalism is so good. And he basically just used a, diff- a different definition of capitalism that talks about the inherent desire to compete between individuals and how good that is. And that's completely true. I mean, I am, would never disagree. I mean, capitalism in the sense of human competition has done great things for alleviating world hunger and... For distributing all kinds of food that we would never have. So there's a more variety of food in some senses thanks to capitalism, mercantile capitalism, especially, because that's when a lot of the exploration was going on, or the trading between nations was starting and continents. So like wheat get coming to the US and North America and apples coming to the North America and corn and chili being spread around the world. But in its current stage, that free market, American free market capitalism, yeah, is more of a homogenizing force than it ever has been even in the past.
0: So I wanna move to a question on the outline here, and then I wanna go back to what we were talking about beforehand, and when, we, when I cut this show together, I'll, I'll swap their places, but the last thing I've got written here is, is that I think we have an inborn American optimism that as a rule, the new stuff that comes along, in this case, out of our late-stage capitalism, you know, our technologically marvelous society is good. And that it's a fine reason to not be worried about this stuff that we're losing. So, yeah, maybe we don't all have access to artisanal bread, but we all have iPhones. You know, that's a trade that we're making. And especially, I think, I mean, I think the really big thing in this optimistic outlook is not just we have iPhones, but imagine what we will have. It's always the promise of some greater technological future. So I think there's arguments to be made there. And certainly there's arguments to be made for capitalism starting in 1800. You know, the practical elimination of famine in the world. That's that's pretty good. But you could also say, well, capitalism, industrial capitalism has brought on climate change, which might result in quite a lot of famine in the future. So I'm bouncing that out. But anyway, I think there are pretty good arguments to say that what we're getting that's new from capitalism does not necessarily, and I mean that literally, it's not necessarily a rule that that will outweigh the things that we've lost. So if, if I was going to lay something out, we could say bread versus our current food culture. We could say the mobility that all four of us have enjoyed in life versus a rooted community in in a place like the Sierra where we worked. Where do you guys come down? I mean, you all know that I'm a pessimist. I think the internet is bad. I think we're all getting dumber and angrier and more ignorant all the time. And that we'll all be dead soon, uh, maybe sooner than we ought to be.
3: Um, uh, going back to your conversation about food, I feel like hydroponics is a good example of our food being affected by capitalism or the food production affected by capitalism in this new space age way. You know, Hydroponics is going to save everything. So, we don't need natural soil that's full of nutrients, and we don't need the climate. You know, we can grow all the healthy food we need in little isolated gel bits in whatever climate we need to. Like in the South Pole, they have a hydroponic garden. So, I think that's an example of uh, the optimism that we have that, like, we don't need all the things that we've destroyed. But on the other hand, as I think James mentioned before, um, or you guys were talking about Michael Pollan. It's, it's a little foolish to think that we have already figured out all the nutrients that go into plants and all the biological processes that happen to make the nutrients that our body needs, like fungus comes to mind, all the microbial interactions that are happening in the plant as it grows, and then how that interacts with our gut. So that's just a, a good example that I to think about.
0: Just, just a, a further explanation there, Terry, your sister is a mycologist. How little do we people, humans, know about mushrooms? know about fungus?
3: Very little. Very, very little. We don't know anything besides the word mushroom. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who knows what mycelium is, which is the actual
0: organism. Mycelium is the, for lack of a better word, root structure that grows in decaying material, and mushrooms are the fruiting body of that root structure. And because you can't take it out of the ground, you can't look at it in the ground, we have no idea how it works. We straight up don't know.
3: No idea. I mean, mycelium, like, communicate between trees. They can... They uh, pass nutrients between trees roots. They're amazing, and we have no idea what's happening. So there are all these little tiny processes that we can't we can't assume to know anything about. And hydroponics is the perfect Silicon Valley example of us controlling every aspect of our food and thinking that that is the best case scenario.
0: Hydroponics, and uh, can anybody speak to Soylent green soilent?
2: I, I, I just don't even want to talk about that. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I I know people that consume Soylent Green.
2: I believe you.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I feel like the right word is to say that you consume it just because I need to add a little grossness factor. You that's ingest it. Um, it's
3: like animals eat, human beings dine. You cannot dine on Soylent Green.
1: <laughs> that That's definitely true, but that's not... I mean, no, one's, no one in Soylent Green is claiming that you're dining on Soylent Green. It's kind of like, you know... You're not dining on a cliff bar, but you're still going to eat it and it's going to give you energy and it's going to get you through the next you know, couple hours of whatever you need to do.
0: And I think, well, maybe Terry, me and Jimbo's objection to Soylent isn't that it doesn't keep you alive. The same way that corn keeps you alive, but that if you were to try to subsist on a diet that's basically a best guess of modern science about what you need to put in your body and then get that instead of from plants but as isolates. Uh, So, you know, an isolate of vitamin D rather than eating an orange. Um, Yeah, or or being in the sunlight. And I'd just be interested what would happen to somebody who had drank soylent every day for 30 years, whether they would have more or less cancer and diabetes and dementia than people who subsist on a largely white flour and corn diet, the way that we do here in the States.
2: I had never heard of it in the sense of just like, oh, this is like a kind of a a little energy supplement to get me through the next few hours of work. I feel like I've always heard about it as more of a, I don't know, like almost a lifestyle of now you don't have to break for lunch. Now you don't have to make your food. You've got everything the body needs kind of like a matrixy that goop shit that they eat on the Nebuchadnezzar. Like uh, we don't have to worry about this anymore. We don't have to sit down to meals. We don't have to, it, it feels like that same kind of disintegration of, all those other things we're losing with if we're losing like a food culture or a culture where we like stop and sit down and eat meals together or i think it was maybe a freakonomics episode i was listening to way back when i think when it maybe first came out and it was like the now you don't have to be inconvenienced with preparing your own food but there's so many things that we derive from cutting an onion and making food whether it's the camaraderie that we get when we make food the social aspect so when seen as like a lifestyle choice of this is what you're going to use it feels feels symptomatic of like a much uglier a much uglier thing but but if it's just like a push to get you through the day because you needed some extra I don't know B vitamins yeah I don't see anything particularly nefarious about that but it's when it's like I don't know it feels it feels grosser than that to me
1: Yeah and I, I think a lot of it has to do soylent has been marketed in different ways depending and I think the most, you know, if you're ever gonna read someone that's against soylent, they're definitely gonna talk about the lifestyle stuff that you're talking about right now. And if you're gonna talk to someone who's pro-soylent, they're gonna talk about all the other things you can use soylent for as well. And it's that sort of, you know, how are you gonna use it? I think the people that are using soylent as a meal are the people that were already not preparing their own meals. If you're talking about, you know. Sure a stereotypical person like Silicon Valley entrepreneur or like, you know, hackathon, someone who's working in a hackathon and like working, you know, 36 hours straight surviving on ramen noodles. Now they're surviving on Soylent. That's actually an upgrade True. some weird kind of masochistic sense, but it is. And then a friend of mine who he refs, he's a referee for, for soccer. He's like, all right, before a match, like that's a lot of running I'm about to do. And I didn't eat, I didn't prepare well. I can drink a thing of Soylent and I'm good to go.
2: I can see the practical application for sure in that sense.
3: Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask, James, if I was wondering if the lifestyle came first or if the Soylent came first. I think, as Mike said, the lifestyle came first that we've started to skip lunches and it's routine now to eat lunch at your desk or order something out as, and the food quality has gone down. So I think before Soylent even appeared in our lives, we already had this culture of skipping lunches and not thinking about taking the time to prepare our food very and true that, that possibility or that a situation has come about from the fast food industry where we don't cool. we don't have to head anymore
2: and what's the literary reference that soylent green comes from it's a, it's a movie is that the name of the movie yeah, yeah. because I, maybe when that came out like it, w- it wasn't even conceivable that this is something we would do it seemed so like far-fetched
0: well first the movie, came this uh, okay. Soylent is made of, and Green is made of people.
3: You told um, me. That.
0: So t- two points here. Has anybody seen Snowpiercer?
2: Yes, I was going to reference that too.
0: The no, black I goo that to. they eat, those cubes or whatever. So they, they eat this like horrible black aspic, like gelatin. And they're in this train, the only people alive in the whole world after like a global warming but cooling disaster. The whole world's frozen except for this train that circumnavigates the globe. The poor people in the caboose, they fight up the, up through the train, take it to the rich people. On the fourth car in front, they discover that these black gelatinous rectangles they've been eating are made out of cockroaches or just huge amounts of bugs. But Jimbo and I saw it and we were like, that's a really efficient way to produce protein. Like, that's a great idea. <laughs> With that current state of mind?
3: I can't go without bringing up Silent Running, Um, another movie in the same time period as Silent Green with a, a similar lesson. The premise there is that it's far in the future and we've destroyed the Earth's climate, but there's little space pods, one space pod for each environment that used to exist on Earth. There's like a forest one and a desert one and... Most of the pods have been destroyed because it's too expensive to upkeep them. But there's one guy with three little robots, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, on the rainforest pod, and he grows his own food. And everybody else thinks it's really gross and inefficient. But he does it anyway. And then, of course, the government decides to blow up that last space pod with the last environment of Earth. Wow.
0: We what was that fun. one called?
3: It's called Silent Running.
0: Silent Running. Interesting. Yeah. Um, sec- The second thing I want to bring up here, though, you know, we're talking, you know, is it the chicken, the egg with Soylent? And, you know, Michael Pollan wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma, what, 10, 15 years ago? And he's already bringing up the failure of American food culture in the sense that we try to outsource our preparation of food to somebody else. But if we want to look at Silicon Valley, not in the way that I normally characterize them as like particularly evil people, but people who exemplify current trends in American life. You know, if you extrapolate out middle America for 50 years, then you have Silicon Valley. And it seems to me indicative of a sickness that you have guys like Peter Thiel, who if he wasn't mega rich, so he could hire a cook or whatever. But you have guys like Peter Thiel who would probably be pretty happy to eat Soylent, but who are also working on human immortality because they want to live forever. And not to be cliched, well, two things. But one is that you'd live longer if you weren't eating Soylent. I got no scientific backup for that, but I'm 100% sure that if you were eating like a traditional Mexican diet versus Soylent every day, you would live longer. And then the second thing, not to be cliche, but why do you want to live forever if you're not living right now? If you're not cooking your own food and eating it, if you're you're sucking down gray shakes every day, what? why do you need to live forever? Why is that the human life that needs to go on for the next thousand years? Mike,
1: I don't think you're going to hear a whole lot of, uh, I don't have a good reason to disagree with what you're saying, I mean, granted, there's gonna be more to life than one than less. Let's say eating. I mean, some people literally aren't that interested in eating, at least in certain. Those places. are bad people, Mike.
2: <laughs> My question is, how many times a week are they eating soylent or drinking it or whatever? However you consume it, S- slurping soylent. Slurping. <laughs> it's one of those
0: uh, enema enema things. <laughs>
3: So there was this guy I met in college once who didn't like, didn't see the value in music. And we're all like, you're an animal. How can you not see the value in music? But he's just like, I don't know. It's, it's not a huge part of my life. People play it. I don't really care. And I'm sure people like that who feel the same way about food, you know, if you're not going through the whole cultural process and the bonding with your family and loved ones, the preparation and the feeling behind food, you could find your joy elsewhere. The question is like, for people like that, is it okay to let them make that choice? and eat soil forever.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it's it's big not, big, I got to you know in somebody else's game.
1: But it is it is a dangerous thing when we have, you know, systems set up and incentive systems set up to promote that as the way that society is going to move, even though maybe a lot, I, I'm not going to necessarily say it the majority, but I would imagine the majority of people are going to be like, well, I would prefer to not be pushed to eat Soylent as my common diet in 30 years.
0: Well, do you guys remember, I, I don't know if you you caught it, but uh, in the Trump budget, they wanted to propose a change to food stamps where instead of giving people food stamps that they could then use to go to markets or grocery stores or whatever to buy food, they wanted to give these people like boxes, like crates of food. And the thing about it was that if you're creating food, you can't get fresh vegetables, you can't get fresh anything. So it, would, it was going to be like canned, packaged, processed goods. And in as much as Republicans love to attack food stamps, it's like the most economically efficient welfare program we have. And it's one that allows families to choose their own food. So you don't have a crate full of Mexican beans, corn chips, and, and who knows what else going to, for example, a South Asian family. I don't think that's going to happen. But yeah, you know, if Trump becomes the god king of the United States after the Republicans refused to seat Democrats in the 2018 midterms and then they turn all welfare into Soylent supplements that they inject directly into your mouth. <laughs> that be you into, that you movie director? Movie
3: right
0: <laughs> 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 all right. Did anybody else have anything on, on Soylent or Soylent-related tablets? Not not from here. Okay.
2: I feel, like, I feel like we'll get vamp on this for quite a while. Yeah,
0: probably.
2: Yeah, but it's also kind of a problem
1: because we're not disagreeing, so it's not as... Yeah, yeah. No,
2: but I think It's gross, but you know, we don't have to regulate it, but it's gross. But the one thing that I was, I, and maybe this will go nowhere, but I'm going to attempt it. But as Terry was talking about, you know, music, that's a very human endeavor. I don't know if it's the most human endeavor, but we kind of like, if we pull back the camera and we try to think about like, I don't know, it's interesting to read all these different theories or conceptions of where did, where did consciousness first emerge in pollen's view Humanity kind of escaped from our other proto-hominid whatever um, through cooking, through making food, through it no longer being in our digestive tract, but we've outsourced that to the pot and to the fermentation vat and all that. So in that sense, I don't know if it's the thing. It, other people would say it was drugs or, you know, like all sorts of stuff. I don't know which one it is. I imagine it's a confluence. Uh, it's several things in, in conjunction but something that feels so distinctly human in music too. I like, I have trouble getting on board with anybody who's not in music. I I don't know what, I don't know what their deal is. I have cousins like that. It's hard for me to relate to them other than it it seems alarming. If we're living in a certain system that seems to pull us away from these things that seem to make us feel the most human. I, I know I've been talking a lot about, I've been running a lot. I've been trying to be more active and I feel remarkably better when I do. There's the thing, and I think it's well substantiated now that digging your hands and your feet into soil has antidepressive properties. Having contact with the microbial, uh, bacterial life. This isn't just an inert growing material. This is things that are affecting your emotional well-being. These thing, these are the things that we were doing when we became human. We were either ingesting things or we were doing these things. (laughs) And so now when we're living in a paradigm where we're no longer, or we're being relegated to either cubicles or, I don't know, all these kind of cliche critiques of capitalism, but it's true. We're no longer, I feel not as good when I don't cook, when I don't eat good food, when I don't use my body, when I don't. We're a hyper social primate being asked to live in not a hyper social primate way. And so, if if it comes down to what's the best way to live as a human, it feels like the not best way.
3: That that's the key. Like, kind of, our happiness revolves around this huga feeling of community and bonding. And how are we going to reach that if we don't cook together and practice those traditional things together?
0: And some, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it's been, it's been gaining traction at least on my Facebook. But it's it's something that I've been hearing about for at least a year. But people advancing the idea that maybe depression, especially, isn't so much a function. Of brain chemistry as it is a problem of society. But the way this is always framed is that if you live in a sick society, which is always pretty much my conception of like, if you live in a late capitalist society, you know, are you crazy or is society crazy? But all the stuff you just brought up seems to make more sense to me than that. You know, you worked in an office one day too long, so now your brain chemistry has changed. It makes much more sense to me that you take a being that has lived. For the majority of its waking hours in the sunlight, in close contact with the soil and what we would think of nowadays as as nature, in environments that are incredibly far from antiseptic. And you take that thing, you give it a different kind of work, you make it work in a different kind of environment, and you... what well, you, you see what I'm saying, right? That it, it might not be a societal sickness, but it, a total change of environment for the human being, Right.
1: But isn't that something that like we as human beings created for ourselves? We we brought it upon ourselves. So we, have to, yeah, absolutely. we have to own up to that in a pretty hard way that I make the choice every single day to go work in a cubicle.
0: Yeah, no, 100%. I have to
1: somehow deal with that while also kind of critiquing it. I can't say – I guess I always have a problem with – or I, I get in trouble myself when I'm, I'm complaining to myself or reading about other people talking about how it's a problem to be in a cubicle, and then you have to make sure that you're, you know, looking off into the distance of, uh, for 20 seconds every 20 minutes to make sure that your, your eyes aren't breaking and that your brain chemistry is moving. So you have to go on walks, and, all, and people have Fitbits that tell them to go on a walk every hour. I can complain about that, but at the same time, I'm the one that putting myself somewhat in that position. Granted, they're a societal, you know, we create incentives in our own society that make that happen. How do we deal with those contradictory,
0: scenarios yeah and even i I remember i sent james last spring a we're we're talking about the necessity of the ability to farm for a guerrilla girl of war and any any sort of organized resistance to central control pretty intense guerrilla you have there Yeah. yeah i had to work on it for the guatemala shows (laughs) <laughs> but I remember I sent James a documentary last spring when I was still working on a freelance subtitling for a spare change uh, about uh, earth ships, this community of people in the desert of, I think new Mexico who build these incredible earthen structures that are, you know, they, they get their own solar power and they, they do all sorts of really incredible stuff. Uh, and they're, they're making plants grow in the desert because they, they utilize their wastewater and in, in such and such a way. But like a third of the way or two thirds of the way through this documentary, they go, yeah, but we still use like a thousand gallons of gasoline a month or something like that, where it's like, this is such a cool living with the earth kind of community. And the second that central control broke down, they would all die. And I think, you know, if you're going to talk about actually self-sufficient farming communities in the United States, you're looking at like the Amish, the Pennsylvania Dutch and Anabaptists, right?
2: A way of life none of us
0: would find appealing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I've been near to them and... uh
1: and I think it's wrong to to consider that you know it, it has to be this purely you know self reliant kind of way of living, especially being an engineer like really into into infrastructure. I'm very pro infrastructure. I think there's a lot of things that a big government can do that a smaller a smaller community could never hope to to accomplish, at least not in any reasonable time frame. Dealing with the availability of safe drinking water, wastewater treatment, roads, good, safe roads, infrastructure that promotes human health and safety. I think that that's okay, but sometimes it can be overly centralized and there's some sort of balance that I think is valuable.
2: I think (laughs) that's an interesting point too. You say centralized. I feel like in a lot of different arenas and a lot of different topics, it seems like it comes down to decentralization mm-hmm. is what ultimately gets at the things that I'm interested in, which yeah. are, well, primarily agroecology, which tends to be getting away from an entirely centralized system and moving more, inching the scale a little bit more in the direction of decentralization, which centralization works great for certain things like infrastructure it would make sense that everybody
1: – Yeah, and, and certain types of infrastructure. I mean mm-hmm. I think – in to agree with you, I think that society operates – a lot of things operate on operate some sort of pendulum. And it would be a valid, a valid argument to say that a lot of things have gone too far to the centralization sure. side of things such as agriculture and electrification of the United States – there are definitely there are definite pros to decentralization of agricultural practices of energy production things like that so
2: yeah case in definitely... point also from a environmental engineer's perspective the bucket that's over there in the corner of my room is like the ultimate example of decentralization which i you know we've had this conversation before and I, I wrote a little bit about it for the i don't remember what the Peace Corps mexico newspaper but the idea of water-based sanitation does solve a lot of problems. It's 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 created a life pretty pretty enjoyable, pretty clean, pretty healthy for for much of us, for most of us. But trying to apply that same centralized, heavy water-demanding system on other areas of the globe where it makes a lot less sense, I think, is where it ends up getting extra problematic.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I would actually argue that it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't make sense here either it's just that we've been doing it for so long that the over extraction of aquifers you mentioned the
2: Ogallala, <laughs> Ogallala
1: right Ogallala uh, aquifer I, I think that we've been in the wrong for a long time in that sense as well so it's not that it makes less sense in in other parts of the world they don't have it it's more of just it doesn't make sense to keep doing what we've been doing here in the u.s we need to do a, a mix of find some sort of less water intensive less energy intensive means to achieve the same goals because we need to make sure that we're maintaining human health and safety while also providing a cleaner environment than the one that we have inherited from the last couple hundred years and
0: I, I think one of my original like I said to Mike a little while ago it was kind of a toss-off line about, about gorillas or whatever the thing that I think it came down to was really, really a dig at conservative in a particular kind of Silicon Valley culture which is that there's a huge, subs- huge, maybe not proportionally, but huge in terms of raw numbers, subset of American society that sort of fetishizes the end of the world. You know, they have their bug-out bags, they talk about when the shit hits the fan, they got their cabins in the woods. If they live in Silicon Valley, they have New Zealand. Uh, for Elon Musk, it's Mars. And they're stockpiling guns, they're installing chemical toilets, they have buckets of food and buy generators for their bunkers. But if you really think, especially for the right-wing guys that are stockpiling guns because they want to oppose the government, if they really wanted to seize some control back from central authorities, whether they're conservative or democratic, whether they like guns or not, you'd be much better off and much more successful investing in real community versus arming yourself to oppose the community that surrounds you. Using a dry toilet, which is what James was referring to with the bucket in his room, versus buying a chemical toilet. And more than anything, learning how to farm Instead of stockpiling food. And Mike and I were just talking about, you know, if you want to talk about a guerrilla, not just against central authority, but against climate change itself. Well, you'd be better off learning how to plant stuff and seizing control from the central authorities by installing a bunch of solar panels on your roof. Finding ways to disengage yourself, positive ways to disengage yourself from from a centralized society.
3: So that's a question for me. If more and more people decentralize themselves and and try to become independent. Is that going to mess up our current infrastructure? Like, will infrastructure survive if more and more people get off of it?
1: I mean, yes, it just requires maybe a different style of infrastructure. I would say that a much bigger strain on our infrastructure has been the amassing of human populations into cities. That's been much more of a challenge than people kind of easing off and living on their own a little bit more.
3: Well, I'm wondering why people, like, why um, local governments are making it illegal to get off the grid. Like, in some areas, you can't produce a certain amount of your own solar power. Have you heard this, or is that just me? There,
0: there are municipalities all over the United States that are making it more or less illegal to begin producing your own solar power or putting laws into place that make it more difficult. People who listen to the show, or at least the Monopoly show, know that there are two industries in the United States that exercise very strong regional monopolies that are backed up by government guarantees. And that is power production and internet service. Also like water utilities and stuff like that, but a little bit less. And what happens is that a power utility gets a regional grant, basically. For example, in Michigan, it's Consumers Energy and it's Detroit Edison. And that's like it for Michigan. There's something else in the UP. But so Consumers Energy vociferously opposes everything in the state legislature that would allow people to get off of their grid because it diminishes the amount of profits that they're allowed to make. And power companies, especially everywhere in the United States, they're guaranteed a certain percentage profit. In Michigan, it's 10 point something percent. And the way that they can increase the raw quantity of money that that 10 percent represents is by investing in more infrastructure. So every time somebody installs a solar panel on their roof, it's a solar panel that they don't get to install and get paid for in perpetuity by the state. And the same thing is happening with Internet infrastructure, that the big ISPs have refused to upgrade the copper cables into fiber, so some municipalities are trying to take that in their own hands. And there's a law from Mary Hoytenga, who's in Holland, Michigan, James, who's trying to make it illegal for municipalities to upgrade their infrastructure. Hmm.
3: So it's just just profit, just profit base. That's all.
0: Yeah, and I mean the company, the companies, it's in their interest to seek profit. It's the Republican uh, Congress people who are giving into that uh, incentive who are malefactors in this situation. Mm-hmm.
2: I have, I have one comment that maybe if this is a break, you can just throw this out. But Mike, I remember talking to you way back in the day. It feels like years now. You posed this idea to me of the difference between resilience versus efficiency. So thinking about Terry's question about what does this look like if we decentralize? So we stop using these roads and they kind of disintegrate. Like, how how do we keep things up? And I guess some of the things that fascinate me—I'm—I'm I'm going to be in Peru this summer working again with a tourism company. But knowing that in Peru there are these millennial mountain terracing irrigation systems that are still functioning, going back to the Incan Empire. So these are things that like they embody resilience. There's something that they, that they put an incredible amount of work into, but they're still functioning without any input. Or in Michigan, you have to repave the roads every. You have to repair them every year, but like a complete overhaul every five years with completely carbon. I mean, it's all asphalt or concrete or something. It feels like our transportation, the infrastructure that we've chosen in the United States is inherently, like, I don't know how you could distance yourself or decentralize a bit without them falling apart. They need constant upkeep. So maybe this is going more to maintenance, John, than to...
0: Well, I mean, I think there's two things there, which I'm sure Mike can speak to. But one is that you can decentralize certain parts of infrastructure. It's relatively easy to decentralize power production. In a way that it's it's less relatively easy to decentralize sanitation. It's hard to get everybody to install a bucket in their bedroom. Well, it's cheap really it's cheaper than solar panels, but there are certain advantages also to a decentralized power grid. One nuclear plant can break down. You can have a fire in a gas in a gas power plant or whatever. But it's hard to burn down tens of thousands of houses with solar panels at the same time. There's inherent advantages to a decentralized power grid. But there's some stuff that it is, you know, as far as we can see right now, it's pretty hard to decentralize. So ideally, you you take stuff like power plants and you could distribute that. But stuff like roads, yeah, it's, you know, you got to have a centralized government that coordinates the resources of a large people to provide goods that work for many. I don't want to get into maintenance, because if we did maintenance and liberal arts, we'd run to like eight hours, so. right. so, moving shows, and skipping one in the middle, I think, which was Maintenance. Liberal Arts, again, was a sequel to a show that was actually just a broadcast of a blog post that I wrote in Peace Corps quite a long time ago. But the basic point was that we have too many people in college. We should be sending kids to trade schools, which means schools that train kids for what we traditionally consider to be blue-collar trades, welding, carpentry, plumbing, mechanics, whatever. But no matter what school you go to, I say in this show, whether you're studying auto mechanically or economics or business, you should be studying a rigorous and effective liberal arts curriculum before or after or at the same time, but in any case, studying it. Our society was built on the liberal arts. Universities nowadays are sort of hedging them out of the curriculum. And I think they're pretty essential to both the country that we've built and to its ongoing survival. So Mike said that he had some thoughts on this. So I want to throw the ball to him.
1: Sure. I mean, I guess my interest in liberal arts education I graduated with an engineering degree from a school that had a pretty strong liberal arts core curriculum I'm not sure that I think it's important to define how we want liberal arts to potentially look and I think you do a good job in your show of really focusing on some philosophical questions I don't think that all types of education are for everyone however something like philosophical questions that are are worth kind of addressing at least in some way, in everyone's education and i think it's not something that's happening in universities i think it's i think the liberal arts is being pushed out most uh, with most vigor at the lower levels of education at uh, from primary to high school education it's really getting getting kicked out the liberal arts in college is a mix where people are looking for jobs so they don't value necessarily the liberal arts education as a student but the institutions still sometimes try to, and I I think in in a pretty strong way. I have problems with the fact that the liberal arts schools are oftentimes today the least open to discourse.
0: Just elaborate on that a little bit. Are we talking about schools that are too oriented towards sort of a special snowflake political correctness policy, or do you mean mean something distinct from that?
1: No, I kind of mean that people that are more liberal snowflakes coming from – you know, small liberal arts schools, places that are traditional bastions of liberalism today are oftentimes the least open to philosophical discussion and debate. Um, You have people getting kicked off campus and you have people not being allowed to speak and whatever, and not for reasons that I, I mean, I definitely agree a lot of the time with the idea that, hey, the person who's coming to speak, I really disagree with what they stand for. And I think that that's dangerous. So I agree with that side but I'm not sure that they're going about it the right way. I'm in this place where I feel like I don't think that a promotion of the liberal arts education is this antithesis to societal ills today. I think we have some deeper reckonings to deal with. Even if we promoted a more, we have more liberal arts education in schools, we need that to permeate society in a serious way. Otherwise, you just have a class that you take you, d- you debate your friends in class, and then you go on Facebook and you bash whoever you want to bash, and you go on TV and you see other people getting bashed all the time, and it's it's this violence of words that is extremely destructive, regardless of how liberal arts our education is. I think our, our education today is, if you're going to talk about his, like history, more people are getting a liberal arts education than ever before,
0: and. Do you guys know what a no true Scotsman argument is? It's a kind of logical fallacy or at least kind of fallacious argument. So I don't know if you guys noticed, but I took part in a lot of this in the liberal arts show. I almost never said liberal arts education. I always said an effective liberal arts education. Really what I was constructing was a no true Scotsman argument. You know, I say lots of people get a liberal arts core curriculum today in universities, but it's not a real liberal arts education because a really effective liberal arts education would have prevented all this other stuff that's 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 going on. So, for example, I went to a school in DC. It has a pretty strong liberal arts core curriculum. And I laid out in the show that ninety percent of my incoming freshman class said they wanted to work in public service, and ninety percent of the outgoing class ended up working at like Credit Suisse and Goldman Sachs. So what I was saying is I got an effective liberal arts education, whereas the other guys just got a liberal arts education that was apparently not effective. And Mike brings up that very important point that more people are getting a liberal arts education to whatever degree it is a liberal arts education now than ever, so why are we more fucked now than ever? Which is I think a pretty pretty gaping hole in the in the argument the show makes. Anyone wanna continue? <laughs> I've got a lot of thoughts, but I feel like I feel like you guys have the well My one objection to that gaping hole is one that I brought up in the show, which is that if you control for race, the best single indicator for who voted or did not vote for Donald Trump was did they go to college. And I don't think that's a class thing. I don't think it's a smart or dumb thing. I think it's who's been exposed to to a wider world. I'd like to think because of the liberal arts, but it's maybe just whoever got out of their parents' house when they were 18 and they you know, met people that weren't of their same race. I I don't know what the mechanism is, but I know that that is the metric, apart uh, from it, that best decides who voted and did not vote for Donald Trump.
1: I don't understand why that has to happen at college. Like, why can't that exposure to new ideas happen even earlier?
2: I know I didn't. I, I didn't have my, I was pretty sheltered in middle school and high school. And then going to college was this opportunity I had. I also studied engineering at like a fine, uh, small, private liberal arts school. But that's also kind of my fear of an engineering education, getting a bachelor of science was I think I did miss out because I wasn't very politically knowledgeable or particularly well-read, like intelligent enough pre-college. Enough. But I didn't go to college with like an acute awareness. I, honestly, like I had very little conception of liberal versus conservative. I was pretty ignorant of the political realm or even of history. John, I, I was thinking earlier – I don't want to blow my cover here too much, but I remember I sent you that thing about when Terrence McKenna talks about a liberal arts education and kind of how now it seems that we've lost a sense of history when when a populist or, or, or an electorate can't even go back like a few hundred years. We can hardly talk about things on a timescale of decades. And again, I'm not talking about Mike or John, but I'm talking about like your average Joe now, I think has a pretty difficult Time having a conception of just basic history or basic philosophy, so we're kind of like in an interesting. We're living in a tension of now we have a shortage of, of tradesmen. Now they're saying people should stop studying engineering, stop studying nursing. You should go learn welding and carpentry and all these things that we have shortages of in the United States. And so, also interesting, what Mike said is this needs to be this needs to permeate our culture more. So, could we do that? Could we have trade schools that also give? A broad stroke, but a pretty rigorous at least primer into world history or philosophy or ethics or, or all these things? Like is it is it possible to have
0: both? You know, if we're living in our ideal world and we can design, for example, these trade schools, they're gonna take on all all the kids that can and maybe want to and, and maybe should be studying, you know, trades instead of you know, degrees in literature or in economics, which is uh If we were to design these new trade schools, I think part of the problem, and this bears on, you know, my part of society, is I don't think we teach history very well. I think there's, for a certain person, like me, the way that we teach history is great. You know, I want to know all the details, all the facts. I want to know what the particular 1980s French school of history is called. I want to know all the technical terms. I know all that stuff. But if you're talking about it like a primer on world history, you give me two hours in a whiteboard, and I can give you the history of man from 100,000 BC until today in a way that's narrative- And makes sense. And if you give me a semester, I can teach world history to people in a meaningful way. Because the average person, and every time we say average person, we're average people except for Mike. But the average person doesn't need to know, you know, the intricacies of a French village in 1400. They just need to know the general currents of history as, as they moved.
1: Oh, yes. I'm very well spoken on the intricacies of French villages.
0: (laughs) I'm just saying you're the one of us that's not an average Joe. That's what I'm saying. But I think that's something that we can easily put into production, as it were, if that was where we wanted to go. And I think likewise, you could do an intro to philosophy course that would work for fourth graders. You know, you couldn't do all the original reading, but you can work with the questions that matter.
3: So I was going to bring that up. When you're talking about educating kids at a younger age on a liberal arts education, we totally can. You can teach at any age, um, philosophy and everything, but to a certain level, to that age. That's why I think another, if I was to design my own system, everyone would get a free four-year liberal arts education. And then after that, they could go on to do a trade school or a grad school or whatever else.
2: Mike, out of curiosity, were engineering students exempt from taking the number of other courses that people may be studying business or economics or whatever? Yep. At Columbia,
1: it was the core curriculum, which is for all the students that are in the college of all studies except for engineering. And engineering, you have to study like a third of those core classes. I took a year of like the history of Western philosophical thought, but I did not also have to take a year of Western literature. Did a little bit of it, not all of it.
0: Okay. Um, so my last summer after college, before I went to the Peace Corps, I had a group of guys, of very intelligent guys, and we would get on the back porch of our house on T Street in D.C., and we would smoke hookah and drink beer and uh, talk about how to solve the problems of the world. And one of the questions that we would put to any new member of this group was, if you were going to mandate one class in high school that would fix the American situation, a class that you can hypothetically say is going to work. The class is what you say it is, and it's going to work the way you say it is. What one class would you guys institute to fix America? Now that we're talking about teaching liberal arts to younger to younger students.
3: I would do a logic class, logic and reasoning. You
0: can do okay. Tell me too. about that, Sherry.
3: Like, little, little little kids can get that. You know, like, what, what arguments are real, what arguments are false, and they can learn how to start deconstructing um, sentences. And deconstructing arguments—that'd be really cool for kids. You could even add it to your math class. I mean, I don't know. I think you could you could infuse logic into all kinds of different classes. But a class in logic would be great.
2: Okay. I, I could say I wish I wish I took a debate course. I think maybe one of my like a, a really useful class in college, which was like a super minor footnote, but just a speech class, like learning to be persuasive, be a good speech giver, but also having sound. Uh, logical debate skills that's something i never learned
0: <laughs> how is your class going to solve american oh I, oh
2: i no that's that, that's all i have i wish i i wish i took debate <laughs> <honestly>. <laughs> all right fair enough fair enough,
3: fair enough. The last thing i would ever say because then um then you'd have people who are trying to win the debate but well no i mean you're right you're right you're right,
2: Well, right. maybe like a sensible like a debate for humans where we also see like we can put our uh, debate with empathy or debate, or I don't know what we would call it. Huh?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I would actually definitely agree. Something that I distinctly remember from, I remember first grade at, at the very least, we had a textbook. We had I mean, a couple of, not really textbooks, like activity workbooks. And one of those was critical thinking. I brought that up recently. My family has a bunch of educators in it. And were like really i didn't even know that that was you know something that was ever ever done like what do you remember about it and i was talking about mind you this is like first second grade very very young and they must have been extremely simple things but i think that is something that is quite valuable and i would definitely agree with you guys that logic critical thinking i don't know if logic is you know i mean there's lots of different ways to approach a problem and logic just doing it deductively or inductively, or whatever, and that's interesting to do at a higher level. But even some very basic critical thinking classes would be the way to go.
3: Well, serious though. I didn't take critical thinking ever. And I think just like James, um... I I went to state school, uh, Alaska State School, and never was it required to take any kind of critical thinking classes that you guys took in first grade. So I didn't get this kind of view of the world until, yeah, out of college, like Peace Corps, like some conversations in college, but I sure didn't have a group to hang out with in the evenings to smoke with and drink with and have these deep discussions with. (laughs) So yeah, the younger, the better to start on these classes and continue it all through college and forever.
0: John, did you say what uh, what would be your class to change America? Well, my answer back in the old days was always civics, a civics course. And the thing about it is, it, James, did you go to public school in high school? Nah, comes to Christian from. Okay. Okay. Did you did you have to take a civics course in high school?
2: Honestly, like that that's something I could even say I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to define to you
0: what civics even necessarily means. They just gave you like a fortune cookie paper that said render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. <laughs> exactly. No, I never Um, took
2: it explicitly called civics. Perhaps that falls under the category of other things.
0: Well, I only ask because the state of Michigan mandates that high schools must teach a civic class, a mandatory civics course. And mine was very good. It was taught by a dude named Dr. DeVizio. It was probably the smartest class that I took in high school, the class that most asked me to think. But even in that way, even though it was an AP government or whatever, it didn't address what seemed to me by the time I started asking this question to people at parties— were the most important parts of civics for an actual citizen? Were, did you guys, Terry, Mike, did you guys take civics classes at any point in high school?
1: I took AP government like like what you did. Yeah, I took AP government
2: too. Is that what civics
0: oh, are? Yeah, yeah it counted as our civics. Yeah. Uh, um, all, all
3: AP government kids. Yeah. Okay.
0: So it strikes me that almost all of my American history and the civics courses I took apart from AP government and even this very smart AP government course. We're all oriented towards explaining why the American system was the best system that had ever been conceived, and, for lack of a better or nicer phrase, pleasuring ourselves for the thousandth time over the founding fathers and, and the perfection of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Whereas it strikes me that what's important in my civics course that's going to fix America. What's interesting is I started coming up with this this answer before I before I'd read any Palo Frere, who for our listeners wrote the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It struck me that what the thing they should teach you in civics is, is how to fight the government, not in the Republican log cabin way of, you know, stockpiling weapons and joining up with the Bundy family, but how to protest, what it means to call a congressman, how to create political pressure. And more than that, you know, I went to a very wealthy, uh, largely white high school and one of the wealthiest counties in the country. But if you went half a mile down the road to Southfield High, which was almost entirely black and much less wealthy because it was across the line on Southfield Road, the situation was not good. There was no funding. The graduation rate was bad. They didn't send many kids to college. I'd love to see a civics course in that high school that says, not the Declaration of Independence is the greatest document ever written for the millionth time, but says, why is our school worse than that school down the road? And what can we do right now to make our school as good as that school down the road? And not in the sense of, how can we be as smart as those little lily white kids? Why don't we work as hard as them? But what are the systemic differences between that population and our population and where do they come from? And how can we change society to ameliorate those conditions? Maybe that's a lot to pack into a high school civics course, but that's always been my, my answer to this, this party game.
1: I mean, for sure. I mean, that that would be really cool. And I do know that there are schools that do that. There are, Fewer and far between, I think, usually. high schools, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there are. there's an interesting school that I know about. I'm in New York. I was talking to a, a teacher, a social studies teacher, and it's a private Catholic school. And her textbook, her U.S. history textbook, is Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. No way. Which is awesome. And for anyone who doesn't know, look up H- Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. You can find the whole book online for free. It's really interesting, fascinating view on U.S. history through the people that were kind of being pressed at various times as opposed to history through the eyes of the victors. And it's I mean, he's a fascinating guy. So that was really cool to see and, and to learn about. But there's also the challenge, John, of as much as you may want your course to have this nice unifying thing where everyone who leaves it has your view of the world or at least a decently, you know, similar questions to be asking of the world that you are thinking, obviously that's not going to happen in any, in any sense where mm-hmm. you're not going to get everyone to come away from the class with the same outlook. So I love the idea, but I'm also like, you know, trying to push back as well.
0: I guess it. You. you know, it's something I try to be cognizant of, but I think hiding behind a lot of my shows is this idea that would just if everyone just had this one thing, then they'd all think like me? If I could just get the federal government to make people think like me, then we'd all be fine.
3: It's interesting, goal, because if everybody did believe uh, what you believe, then we wouldn't have like the because it would it'd be a terrible world. If you were, or if I was, the supreme dictator, of okay, terrible.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I always think this. You know, if I was a supreme dictator, I would be a very good dictator. And I would, you know, solve the problems just the way I see fit. And I think it'd be a great world. But if you think through that, it's not the way it works. You're not, your solutions aren't going to solve, aren't going to please everyone. There's going to be constantly, always a balance between people and um, values and intentions, always. And uh, that's not something we could ever solve. So
0: Yeah, no, and, and that's absolutely true. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry.
3: Yeah. Um, so uh, just making sure that instead of people having... Um, those things like thoughts, ideals, values, all they, the only thing we want everyone to have is critical thinking, like what makes sales or logic. Mm-hmm.
0: And I mean, it's true. You form a balance in any given society. But what, what's also true is that there's no given center point of that balance. If we look from liberal to conservative, the spectrum of the United States, if this is in some way, absolute liberal, and this is in some way, absolute conservative, our middle ground is way over here, very much right of center. And in Europe, even though they have a similar divide between liberals and conservatives, their middle is over here, left of center. So what I'm saying is, you know, in an ideal world, everyone gets as good an education I had and hopefully better. And that our middle ground would probably be much leftward, which in my impression is much closer to reality than it is in the United States. Okay, so
1: it's not related. well, it is related. yeah, 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 go ahead. A really practical thing, another practical thing that I would like to change about schools Mm -hmm. or education, especially in high schools in this one, is to, if not remove, at least reduce any focus on calculus and move Mm -hmm. to statistics. Interesting. I think that is extremely more useful and more practical for
0: everyday people rather than calculus. I think you're right. I think calculus is like a thousand times more fun.
3: Yeah. I I
0: agree with that.
3: I think, like, calculus, even if you don't uh, apply it, it makes you look at the world differently. And, you like, you actually look. It's like art. Put calculus in the art classes.
1: It, it, huh. it can be quite artistic. I think, I think statistics can be artistic, too. I don't even like statistics that much, but it's so useful. I
0: think the other thing, too, is you could. So I took AP Physics. I'm, I'm sure a bunch of you guys did, too, where I had to use calculus. But I think you could, you know, once you get to, what was it, Algebra 2, and then it's calculus after that. If you want to do engineering in college, you can take calculus. But for everybody else, you get four hours, and they talk to you about Leibniz and Newton, and they talk about how calculus solves this problem that we've had since the beginning of mathematics of how to square the circle, and then you're done. Kind of pretty
1: pretty pro that.
0: Okay. All right. If we don't want to say anything else on that topic, and everybody should feel free to say something else on that topic, Mike uh, has typed teachers with guns. Lead us off, Mike. Okay. There is
1: someone that John Coombs has promoted on his show and to me in person, which is the weekly SIFT. Yeah. And it's got some pretty good information, and um, you know, analysis of the previous week's ongoings. And there was a, an article or a piece that was written, I think it was this week or last week, um, about gun violence in the United States and the debate right now with whether or not teachers should have guns and how that would protect students and all these different things. And we were talking about liberal arts education and how that can be good, how that can be bad, or what what that means. And this piece was talking about the impact of just having a gun, anyone having a gun on a regular basis, having a gun in an accessible place. It changes the way you view the world. You're kind of always on alert in a certain sense where you're worried about um, risks and danger, and you're hyper aware of... Problems that may be arising, which can be a great thing that can be super useful and effective and helpful. On the other side, if you don't have a gun, and I mean, you have to be in a decent state of mind to be able to relax, calm down, trust your environment, and kind of you can doze off and daydream, or you can kind of really interact with, in this case, I'm talking about teachers having guns, so teachers not having guns, getting to interact with their students and not worry about threats that might be coming into the school at all times because they're worried about the gun that's on their hip or in their desk. They're actually able to interact with their students in a more meaningful way because they're not focused on this hyper-awareness of risks and threats. I I think see what you guys think.
0: think. I think the dichotomy or the juxtaposition that we're setting up here is an opposition between trust and mistrust. And if you're going to facilitate, for example, classroom discussion on difficult topics, what you need is trust. It's hard to speak if you don't trust what's what's going on around you. And when we're talking about people who want to be aware all the time because shit may hit the fan, that's mistrust. Not in like a morally negative sense, just if trust is a faith that things are going to be okay from now in whatever timeline I'm thinking about, mistrust is things are not going to be okay. And that's why you need to be prepared, right? And there was another party question that I used to ask people, which I I think actually I asked you guys on the roof of our apartment up in Hopon, which was, what would you do uh, if society was breaking down? What would be the first thing that you did? I think it was inspired in all these same, you know, buckets of food, Republican folks that want to retire to their cabins with M249s and big belts of ammunitions, where their idea of a calamity that entails the collapse of central authority is to immediately arm themselves against their neighbors. And that's an attitude of mistrust. It's maybe not necessarily morally negative, but they're expecting bad things in the long run. And I think I told you guys, my, my first move in in the apocalypse is to go to the library and then set up a like a farming commune in my neighborhood. I think what that's indicative of is, yeah, you know, the world does not turn out all right. So you need some degree of mistrust because just in general over human history, things haven't turned out all right. But I think the converse there is that when things have turned out all right, it's generally because people have trusted one another. And you can get into the security dilemma or whatever from international relations, but the problem of mistrust has often been at the root of things not turning out all right. That is that if I wanted to feel safe, I would not surround myself with people who had guns. I would surround myself with people who like to farm and read books.
3: Yeah, and we're kind of already past that since our – This goes back to community, um, where people are more likely to trust their community and work with their community. If they know them and have grown up with them. But since already our society is more globalized, we don't have those communities anymore, I think that's where the mistrust is stemming from. And I don't know a way to go back besides from starting at communities.
0: Well, that's, a, that's an interesting avenue. Here, you had something about park rangers, right? That community – I'd mentioned in the other show that maybe the only time we Americans experience community the way that other people around the world do is in college. And maybe that's why we fetishize the college experience so much. And Terry, you had something to say well, about that.
3: Well, kind of sad. If, if the best community we have is in college. Cause we're no, it's
0: very family. sad. 100% it's sad.
3: It's not even, there are no grandparents. There's, no, there's not anyone besides people just like you of your age, <laughs> uh, pretty much. Um, so... And I'm not saying that the park so the one idea was that national park rangers who live inside national parks in this little idyllic community, that's a community. But again, that's also poor excuse for native communities like in Alaska Indigenous communities are real communities and they still exist, but you have to be lucky, you have to be born into them. And yeah, that's just like in Mexico. People in Indigenous Alaska's communities are born there, they hunt and fish there and grow there and have their own justice systems. So all these things still exist, but they're not accessible to people who aren't really born into them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the other example was living where I live right now in this marina community. And this is kind of special because I live in a neighborhood of people who live on sailboats and people come and go a lot, but there are about 600 of us who live on sailboats in this marina. And everyone you know everyone knows when a new baby is born. There's a sense of community here like I've never experienced since growing up. In the national park community, mm-hmm. so I think it is possible to find community in the U.S. and build it from scratch, as is here in the marina. We just got to stay still long enough to do that, and we don't do that as a society. You have to travel and get a new job here mm-hmm. and go to school there.
0: Okay, well, building off of that, and because we just hit two hours, seven minutes, and sixteen seconds, we should wrap up. So we've talked about so we've talked about land and capitalism. We've talked about liberal arts, their implications for classrooms, their implications for America, the implications of giving guns to teachers. How do we rescue this situation? I mean, just just in light of what we talked about today, how do we rescue capitalism education? How do we make the u s. better for the next five, ten, fifteen, thirty years?
2: I don't know, I don't know if this is the answer. I'll, I'll weigh in quickly here. Something I've been thinking about lately has been this odd situation of I live with my parents again, who are decidedly conservative in a suburban, southwest michigan neighborhood and i have you guys my peace corps friends and I, I have all these little camps and as we kind of see talking about community what community means now in a digital age in a social media age we have this kind of like i don't know if it's this new tribalism or we we're tending to sort now whether it be our facebook feeds or we with like-minded individuals and i think michael liked this so often that we're kind of drawing from a shallow gene pool of ideas when we're only sticking within our own little community or people who think like us. And sometimes we need to reach outside. So for me, I, I'm just speaking from my own last six months. It's interesting to be with my folks and talk to people who have a very different perspective on life than I do. Come back to talk to you guys. It's like oh, it's like a breath of fresh air. Like of oh, people who I can kind of relate with. I have a, another group that kind of freaked me out with some kind of the far out ideas they have and ways in which I feel like, ooh, that seems like it could end in some kind of strange places too. But living in that tension, because now we have access to people with other ideas, we don't seem to want to tap into that. But I don't know what the answer is there other than I have found it to be, it feels good to try to live in that tension and to try to have conversations with people who think quite a bit different than you. I'm doing life with my folk, but make it work. Like this has to, we have to figure out a way to make it work. It has to, Mm -hmm. this has to be possible. Even if we think very differently about things and it's uncomfortable, it's like super messy and uncomfortable. I don't know what you guys would say about that. And I don't know if that necessarily speaks exactly to, but like, how do we go forward? How do we go forward? Because right now we're kind of drawing the lines. It feels like in our day-to-day lives, like we don't really interact with people of, A very distinctly different ideological Mm -hmm. perspective so is that what it it, do we need that or do we need to like hunker down in our camps of like no this is the fucking answer we need to do this or is it is it in the discourse across
0: across the boundary lines i mean if i'm talking about real solutions to like american political society I i think that ideological diversity is overrated Uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's worthless, but I think it's overrated. Uh, I'm glad to
2: hear that. I will I will nix that from my list of cool (laughs) things.
0: I mean, I I think that the Democrats continue to pursue the image of bipartisanship in in an environment when one party is clearly going off the rails. I mean, speaks to the nature of, you know, it's not always that valuable to have different political positions going on. You know, in Weimar Germany, there were Democrats and there were Nazis. I'm, I'm not sure that the diversity that the Nazis brought to the equation was a value. If we're talking about political solutions to our problem, I think that, like I said in my last show about political cynicism, the Democrats and more generally leftists need to sweep what Hillary Clinton called the deplorables from power and create a second American reconstruction and re-educate these unsavable 30% that haven't seen the bad in Donald Trump yet. But as far as what you're saying, I mean, it's, besides a practical political solution to what's going on. Yeah, we're in a bad place. And even if you believe in some sort of technological messianic future, stuff's not great. Traditional society had some stuff that we don't have anymore, and that's no good. Our diet's killing us. We're not happy. Those are two things that seem pretty existential, even if you're not worried about climate change.
3: John, you said we wouldn't end the show like this, and you're ending the show like this.
0: <laughs> I said apart from climate change. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Mike, Mike, what do you got? So
1: this is not necessarily the most on topic, because we haven't talked about it a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But I mentioned the idea of pendulum earlier. And we've talked a lot about deductive reasoning and logic and the danger of simplifying our world into you know nice, neat packages. And I think that is kind of embodied by enlightenment thinking. I think I, I would go back to the enlightenment as a real, the push to where we are today. And I think what I would love to see is a push towards what I'm deciding to call neo-traditional thinking. And that is the reviving of traditional thinking in a global sense. Obviously, we have lots of indigenous groups and people that still have traditional modes of thinking that, tend to value community over the individual. They tend to value Mm -hmm. local food and they tend to value the environment. And I mean there's lots of different um, things that are often over idealized I do believe but as far as the pendulum swings goes I think we've gone too far into the extremes of, of enlightenment thinking and deductive reasoning and we need to start pulling back on the values that are inherent to traditional thought So I would love to see a neo-traditionalist push where we're promoting indigenous thought throughout the world and kind of drawing on the best because I'm not going to pretend that all traditional views are ones that I would agree with because they often involve the persecution of groups that were different from them in certain ways. So, and there's lots of different examples, but that would be my push for some idyllic societal fix.
2: I, if, that I, could, I like that a lot too. If I could jump off that last comment you were making, sometimes traditional societies counterintuitively actually have a much more open, like the ancient Aztec, is it Mayan or Aztec? I think it's several groups. were pretty open to kind of deviations from a gender binary. They tend to be more actually more comfortable, which I think is Counterintuitive to how we th- we we typically equate traditionalism with conservatism now, which maybe in general that's true, but there's definitely there's ways in which traditional societies deviate from that, from what conservatism means now in the United States. I think far more open and receptive to different social, sexual, religious views. A, a lot is tolerated actually in, in traditional societies. I live
3: in villages where they do circle justice. And you are part of the community and you say, that the whole community goes to trial together because they failed you.
2: Ooh. Mm-hmm. Is that a thing?
3: That's a thing. It's called circle justice.
1: I would like to put a little plug in here for the most recent uh, SFD full show, because actually, I, I think, John, you talked about a little bit of what I was going on just now in your discussion of Confucianism and different modes of thought and values that were found in Vietnam pre American war and pre-wars. So I think that was really a great part of the show. And I hope that other people kind of think about that as as they listen to it.
0: Just, uh, you guys are ready to wrap up, right? It's been two hours, 20 minutes. We're like, we're pretty ready. All right, so my two recommendations for what to do. I'm trying to be more practical. Two things you can do. You know, I think most of the people that listen to the show are young people, except for my folks and all their friends. But uh, the second one of your parents gets sick, go home. Go home and take care of your parents. Don't stay where you are. Don't send them money. Don't put them in a home. Go home. Take care of your folks. Because when you're about to die, you'll feel better about it before you're dead. Obviously, not everybody can do that. We're all pretty privileged people. I think maybe out of this circle, I'm, I'm the most privileged of all. And I had the opportunity to do that. And I'm going to keep doing it, you know, until I'm dead. But it'll make you feel better.
2: <laughs> and, That's all we're certain- trying to do
0: a certain part of the show is about making you feel we're living in the death of human society we're living in the dark age before the end take care of your folks because you'll hate yourself less as the, the you know the scream goes white and the nuclear blast comes to claim your skin and flesh and bone uh, other than that while you're living with your folks you know take your dumps and buckets plant a garden find a way to live on your own at the same time that you're part of a human society because you'll feel better about it couldn't have said it better myself Oh. Especially, Especially the
2: part. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Especially the garden part and the worms.
0: Anything else? Anybody else?